you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Now some of you, on the way in, I'm sure, when you walked in the door this morning, you said to yourself, hey, that's a Mongolian gear down there. Um, uh, I don't think I've ever noticed that before. Well, that's, that's because it's never been there before. Uh, this is the first time uh, it's ever been um, set up there. And um, we are, uh, Among Foundation is having a uh, get-together, fundraiser, information sharing uh, meeting this Saturday. And uh, that gear is there to uh, an- announce that fact and invite you to come and be part of that if you like. Uh, after the service, uh, Hete and Melanie will be around back there, and uh, Hete has invitations to that event, and you can ask him anything that you like about the gear. But one of the things central to that ministry is church uh, planting by uh, the step-by-step team, and uh, there's about 40 churches out in the countryside, and most all of them meet in uh, a gear like that. Uh, now, they all meet in winterized gears, and so there's a whole big thing of felt uh, that goes over the top of that. So it wouldn't look nearly that col- uh, colorful. It looks uh, fairly rustic out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but in- and I don't know if this is, if there's actually a linguistic connection, but I suspect, like at a 93.7% chance, that there is, uh, the Hebrew word for sojourner is ger. Um, now, I would guess that's why a sojourning society turned around and called their, uh, their tents gers, um, because that's what Mongolia has been for centuries and centuries, and hundreds of thousands of people uh, still live in gears like that, even in the even in the in a big city like Ulaanbaatar, the what we would call the suburbs is gears. All around the edge of Ulaanbaatar is uh, is gears. So if you're interested in that, and you should be, church planting in the world and church planting in Mongolia, our church has been part of that for 30 years almost. Uh, you just stop by there. I'll warn you in advance, uh, and Hete will be out there to warn you. Watch your head on that door when you get in. And then if you're very tall, watch how fast you stand up on the other side, because that wood is there. I would have smacked my head on it when we had our little prayer meeting there, but Melanie saved me. Don't stand up. Uh, and I, so I, I stayed down long enough uh, to survive it. Uh, but so, so that is after the service, stop back there, visit with uh, Hete about that, and think about uh, Saturday night and finding out more about all the churches that meet in that kind of setting uh, throughout the reaches of the steppe regions in Mongolia, Gobi Desert, and elsewhere. Let's uh, stand together and we'll read... Mark 8, 10 to 13. 
And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You, who have written and placed your splendor upon the heavens. We could see it this morning in the sunrise. We'll see it all day long in the sky. See it at night under the stars. How majestic is your name in all the earth. From the weakest creatures and those most Dependent upon you, you establish strength, strong conditions of spiritual life. And you do that in the midst of a world filled with trouble. Near the end, Jesus said, and it's been the end time for a long time, there will be wars and rumors of wars. And so there is fresh violence in Israel, violence in the Ukraine now for a long stretch of time for those living there. Violence in South Sudan repeatedly. Violence in neighborhoods across our nation violence and trouble through sin. And yet, and yet, when we look at your heavens and the work of your hands and the moon and the stars, which you have put solidly into place, And we look at human beings whom you have given incredible gifts. You have made us in your image. We are a little less than angels, a little less than heavenly beings. You've crowned us with glory and honor and caused us to reign over the works of your hands. You've put all things under our feet, 
And in our sin, we mismanage many of them. But as a testimony to you, it is plain that they are under our feet. Sheep and cattle, all of them. All the wildlife, we oversee it. Conservation programs, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea. We track and understand where the whales move from season to season. We know what their paths are through the waters. You have made us in your image. And the great thing that we are enabled to do by being in your image, the greatest thing, is to know you, to understand you, to know your son, to participate in his great salvation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we ask that your name would be made majestic in our hearts and minds as well as your people and your worshipers. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I often do, because a number of you are, are, are insightful people, and, and you'll, you'll, you'll share with me, you know, Pastor, that was a very, very dated opening illustration. You probably should have thought about that a little bit more. Well, I'm just going to tell you that it's a, it's a, it's a dated, uh, but I thought about it a lot um, and, 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 and kept it here, uh, kept it here uh, anyways. Um, um, relatively obscure uh, NBA player from 60 years ago, though it wasn't, obs- wasn't obscure at the time. Uh, a guy by the name of Bill Bradley played his college basketball at Princeton University. And in 1964, Bill Bradley took Princeton to the final four of the NCAA tournament. Now, for you non-basketball fans, let me just tell you, Ivy League schools never get within the shot of a 30-odd six of the final four. That just does not happen. They don't go anywhere near it. They never participate in it. Um, But in 1964, they did. And by the end of that tournament, um, Bill Bradley owned every scoring record for the Ivy League, and I believe he still owns them all until this day. Um, Also in 1964, he was a pivotal part of the American Olympic team, which won the gold medal, uh, he would go on to become a senator in the state of New Jersey. He, say, he served three consecutive terms, and his political career ended in the year 2000, running for president when he was defeated there by Al Gore. Now, here's the stunning thing, though. The first book 
The first book written about Bill Bradley was written in 1965 when he was 22 years old and hadn't even started his NBA career yet, which he went on to play 10 years for the New York Knicks and won two NBA titles during that time. But before any of that happened, any of the politics, any of the NBA success, a book came out by a guy by the name of John McPhee, 1965. Now, John McPhee would go on to be a storied writer. His first book he ever wrote. He was born and raised in Princeton. Uh, McPhee's dad was the physician overseeing all the athletic departments at Princeton University, so he was very much tied through his father into Princeton athletics, and therefore he had followed the career of Bill Bradley while playing at Princeton, wrote an article for the New Yorker, which one of the publications he was working for by then, he was in his 30s when Bill Bradley was 22 years old. McPhee would go on to write many, many books. He won a Pulitzer Prize eventually in nonfiction and taught nonfiction writing at Princeton for uh, decades, decades. Now, I say all of this because of the title that he gave that biographical sketch of the first 22 years of Bill Bradley. Uh, As a a basketball player, Bill Bradley was famous for having absolutely unbelievable peripheral vision. He saw the court like very few players have ever seen it, and it made him just an unbelievably phenomenal passer and able to read things that were going on around him, and it helped him become a great contribution to any team that ever played, because he saw things so clearly. He was also a really scholarly guy. He had a Rhodes Scholar, went off to Oxford as part of his road into the Senate. And so John McPhee, seeing this, and this kid that was only 22 years old and knowing about this peripheral vision, he gave his memoir of the the 22-year-old young man this really insightful, intriguing title. He called it, A Sense of Where You Are. A Sense of Where You Are. Now, I say all of that to get to that title because we're in this brief little paragraph and you read past a paragraph like this when you're reading through your Bible and the, you know, the Pharisees came and asked for a sign and Jesus said no and and Jesus was grieved and he got in a boat and he went on, there you go, there you go. What was that about? Well, people asked for a sign and Jesus said no. Um, Well, I actually think that Mark 
wants us to think about that paragraph a little bit more than that as we read something like that in the context of uh, the Bible. For Mark has a sense of where we are. Those of you who have been in the Revelation Sunday School class, the opening chapter of the book of Revelation is all about, it's really nothing else but about this. Looking out at the Roman Empire and giving us a spiritual sense of where we really are when we're living inside of an empire like that. Which is why it's really important for for Christians to study such a thing, because we find ourselves in the American empire. And it's no easy thing to have an accurate sense of where you are when you are up to your eyeballs in the outlook of the American empire, as those in the first century were up to their eyeballs in the Roman empire, And the Pharisees were up to their eyeballs, not only in the Roman Empire, but in the Jewish response to the Roman Empire. Let me read the text again to you. And immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now I submit to you that John's per, Mark's purpose in pausing and including this little, really three verse long with one verse introduction, this little three verse paragraph is to remind his readers, to give them a sense of where they are a sense of where Jesus was when he was doing his ministry, and a sense of where they are and will be as they do their ministry, because they're going to be in the same place. They're going to be facing roughly, broadly the same challenges. And it's important, therefore, that you have a vision of what's really going on what reality is placing around you and before you as you try to follow the Lord through this place that we find ourselves living, passing through. State our thesis for this morning this way. We are to live with a realistic sense of our spiritual landscape. We're to live with a realistic sense of our spiritual landscape. Verses 10 and 11. Immediately got into a boat, 
with his disciples, went to the district of Dalmanutha. Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, you can, you can read 50 commentaries, and I'll tell you nobody knows where Dalmanutha is. Uh, no one. Uh, nobody claims to know. Nobody claims even much of a guess. Um, they'll, they'll talk about a lot of past guesses and label them all such a pure guess that they're not worth a thing. Uh, and none of that really matters because the only thing that really matters is that wherever Dalmanutha was, it was definitely back on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. We know that because the Pharisees are hanging out there. And they didn't go to the east side. Um, and so it's somewhere in the definitely Jewish-occupied west side, north-south-west side of the Sea of Galilee. And, um, and just as we start to contemplate that, just remember again, our two, the one thing that we say ad, ad nauseum all the time is, remember, context is king. Context is king. That's really key in this passage. This, this little paragraph makes no sense. If you've already forgotten everything you've just read in the previous paragraphs, then it won't strike you at all like it's supposed to strike you, like it must strike you. But then the second thing to keep in mind is the kind of literature that Mark is. Mark isn't just writing a biography of Jesus. He's not just writing history. But neither is he writing anything like systematic theology. Uh, Mark, like the gospel writers, he is doing what you might call, um, he's, a, he's a historical theologian. He's a historian and a theologian. And he weaves the history right into the fabric of the theology. And he weaves the fabric of the theology right in to the history. And that's what's going on here. And so, first of all, just that that context piece, that context piece, is uh, that Mark understands Jesus to be an absolutely extraordinary person. Uh, Mark would have the same view of Jesus that John did, right? John 1.14, and the word became flesh. That's a tremendously theological statement. The word became flesh. The creator of all things became a creature. Entered human history. And this is where the historical statement is made. And dwelt among us. And dwelt among us. God has entered human history. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, And so those context, theological context, historical context, all have to be kept in mind. Uh, So theologically and Contextually, do you see the irony? Given what we've just been following going on in the life of Jesus, 
to have the Pharisees come to him and said and say, Now we would like to see a sign if we could. Well, now back in chapter 6 of Mark's gospel, Jesus fed 5,000 Jewish people with a boy's lunch. That was a pretty impressive thing to do. Nobody could possibly understand how, how he did that. We have seen him cast a demon out of this Syrophoenician woman's daughter. We have seen him give hearing and speaking to a deaf mute. And then he turned around and fed 4,000 more people with seven loaves of bread. And now we're in our paragraph, and we hear the Pharisees say, Yes, but what we really need is a sign. What we really need is a sign. Then we might know whether there's really anything special about you or not. If we only had a sign... I was tempted, briefly, to either do the song from the Withers of Oz for you, from the Scarecrow, If I Only Had a Brain, you know, know, from the Pharisees, you know, If I Only Had a Sign, Um, but I passed passed by that, passed by that. But that is meant to jump out at us. Oh, if we only had a sign. (laughs) What Mark means for us to realize is what is spelled out by John over in John 12. If you wonder how deeply the Pharisees are looking for signs, trying to find good reasons why they might place their faith in Jesus. If you think that's what they're wrestling with, just remind yourself of this. John 12, 9 through 11. Jesus has just gone to uh, the home of his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, having heard that their brother was sick, and then that he died. He arrives there after Lazarus has been in the grave four days. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Fast forward a little bit into John 12, and here's what we read. And when a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. That is, as well as putting Jesus to death. They made plans to put Lazarus to death. Well, why would they do that? Because 
on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So what's with seeking the sign? They're surely not looking for extra information in order to make a, a, you know, a, a more discerning judgment of who Jesus is. It has nothing to do with seeking information about Jesus. Nothing. Zero. Zip. I've mentioned many times when Shirley and I were first married, took a job back in McHenry, Illinois, break parts. Um, only been gone from that area for about five years. Uh, we moved up to Canada in 1974, Shirley and I, and I got married in 1979, so we moved back in there and took this job. And, and so lo and behold, you go in, this factory employed about 500 people, but in my little section, the only people that I ever saw, there was about 36 of us, and we were running brake rotors in, in that section. And one of the guys, one of the guys that would set up the machines, you had these two CNC machines, and you stood between them and ran one side of the rotor on your left and one side, the other side on your right, um, and then pressed the bearings into them and, and, and sent them on to the next station. That's what, that's what I did for 15 months. And one of the guys that would come and adjust your machine or set it up, his name's Steve Davis. He was, I'd known him from high school. He's a year ahead of me. Uh, Steve was a, a small for his size, but he was a scrappy, fighting sort of kid, always getting into scrapes, always having fist fights. Extremely, extremely strong for his size. Um, and a volatile temper sort of guy. Uh, but when uh, so, but now you know I'm 21 years old and Steve is about 22 years old and uh, and he figures out that I'm a religious person and so he lets me know that he's Roman Catholic that he doesn't really go to church but uh, and but that's because he has all these questions that nobody can answer for him so I was like what kind of questions so then he starts sharing these questions with me. I probably only see him, you know, maybe 10 minutes a day, but for for three months, you know, for 10 minutes a day, and then sometimes at break, you know, we, we end up, we, we go over these questions, and his, they were all standard questions, you know, they were uh, that Christians have been answering for a long, long time, and, and so I would answer his question, and he would say, oh, no, no, that's very satisfying, good you know, good job, Randy. We came to the end, and eventually he shows up one day, and I said, so, Steve, so where are you at? He says, well, I'm all out of questions. I said, okay, so what are you going to do now with the Lord? Well, he said, you know, he said, I've been thinking a lot about that. He said, you know what? It doesn't prove anything that you answered my questions because you've been to Bible college, and I didn't. And, and, and you read books about this kind of thing, and I don't. And so if there was somebody as skeptical as me that was as educated as you, they would know better questions that you wouldn't be able to answer. I said, 
Yeah, that's a, there's a, yeah, that's possible. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. Um, but do you see what he was really saying? He was, he was saying exactly the things the Pharisees are saying here. We would like to see a sign. Steve, I would like to have some questions answered. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You're not looking for information. You're looking to bolster the place where you're presently hiding from the truth of God. That's all you want. Uh, You are absolutely, solidly, totally hunkered down into your present position, opposed to the knowledge of Christ. That's where the Pharisees are. And that's what stands out in their asking for a sign. As if they're seekers. Oh, you know, we're sort of spiritual seekers. If only we had a sign. But they're not, and Jesus doesn't take them to be. And hence the second point, the second question. So what's with Jesus sighing? What's with Jesus sighing? See, Jesus, to go back to the title of John McPhee's book, Jesus has a perfect sense of where he's at. Spiritually, theologically, Jesus has perfect peripheral vision. And given his clear sense of where he's at, when they ask their question about the sign, he knows exactly what it means and it doesn't mean, and his response to it is. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. They say, hey, Jesus, no, if only you showed us a sign. And Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. More than 20 years ago, this woman at our church, her dad had abandoned their family when she was just a little girl and uh, just took off and lived a riotous life and left her mother and the children behind and her her mother was overwhelmed and the in the life of the children uh, was pretty much a complete disaster and so this woman as a young woman descended as so many do into alcohol and drugs and then uh, got in uh, sexual activity and then was pregnant out of marriage and then uh, married the father who was uh, worth nothing at all and that marriage quickly fell apart. And, and in the midst of all that chaotic mess, She met Jesus. She met Jesus. Started to grow in faith and put her life back together and 
older ladies were discipling her uh, long before I ever met her. And she had come by quite a ways by the time I ever met her. But then she heard that her dad, who had abandoned the family, who she didn't really know, that he had had a heart attack. And so she felt compelled to go see him. And she did. She went and she gave him her testimony, and he didn't care. Uh, he, he always said, he's glad for her. You know, I'm glad. You know, I'm glad religion has helped, your, helped you. Really, 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 really glad. I don't need that kind of thing myself. But So she, she then came to me and thought, no, no, if a pastor went up there. And I thought, no, no, it wouldn't, that wouldn't help. I mean, if he doesn't, no, no, but please, pastor, would you go up there with me? Said, okay, so I did. Uh, you know, so I could be proved right publicly. But I really did. Like I said, oh. And went up, and, 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 there, and, and, and we talked to this guy, and he's pretty rough shape. I mean, he had a pretty serious heart attack, and his health was not good when that happened to him. So he was not likely to be long for this world. And he sort of knew it. He sort of knew it. I remember asking him, so what, like, what do you think happened to your daughter? How would you explain it? Oh, I can't explain it. Well, she's just, I said, isn't it amazing that she cares enough about you after what you did to her? And here she is, trying to form a relationship with you and help you. Oh, yeah, no, I'm really happy about that. but not the least bit interested in Jesus. And he never was. See, when Jesus meets a person like that, he doesn't get ticked off at them. He, doesn't, he sighs deeply in his spirit, like, Because oh. that's how it goes mostly here. That's how it goes with most of the people in our lives. They're not coming, no matter what you say. No matter what you do. Oh, you should still say and do whatever you can. But most of them, most of them in Jesus' life, most of them in the life of the Apostle Paul, most of them in every country in the world, they're not coming. And Jesus has a sense of that. And he sighs deeply in his spirit about that. See, that's the reason that the worship team read from Romans 9. I'll pick it up in verse 20. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning 
And we do know it because we live here. The whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, that is, we're actually born again. We groan inwardly as we await the adoption as sons, by which he means final resurrection. But even born-again people, as long as they're here, the things going on in their lives, the things going on in their families, the things going on around them, we're not going to out-experience Jesus. We're going to often find ourselves groaning deeply in our spirit because of where we live and what's going on around us. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians. This was true of that young woman's dad. It's true of many that you and I know and really care about. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14. They're folly to him. Not able to understand them. Because they're spiritually discerned. And Jesus understands this and he groans. He groans in his spirit. Thirdly, what is with Jesus' question to them? What is with Jesus' question to them? What is his question to them? Why does this generation seek a sign? Oh, because we're looking for information. No, 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 no. He knows better than that. Why does this generation seek a sign. It's an accusation, much more than it's a question. We know that because of what Jesus goes on to say about the likelihood that they get it. Now, this is a tricky little translational thing here, and so the because without a little commentary in the, in the margin or at the bottom of the page, anything close to an accurate translation just would leave you thinking, I have no idea what, what like, what? What? Um, so here's, here's how it goes. Truly I say to you, this is, this is how it would translate, Kind of literally. Truly I say to you, if it shall be given to this generation a sign. See how helpful that is? This I, truly I say to you, if it shall be given to this generation a sign. Well, why does he say something so obscure? Because it wasn't obscure to them. It wasn't obscure to them. 
It was like saying to a, 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 you know, a little kid who is really, really, really versed in nursery rhymes. Hickory, hickory dickory dock, dot, 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 dot. And they just, well, the mouse ran up the clock. Yes, that's what he does here. That's what he does here. He gives the opening section of an oath formula. That's what he says to them. Um, gives them the opening section of an oath formula. If they shall be given a sign. Now let me give you a brutal example of that oath formula uh, from a, a godless king. The days of Elisha. First Kings 6. Um, Elisha warned the king of Israel that trouble was going to come if they did not repent. Well, they blew him off. They did not repent. And now Samaria is under siege, which in siege you just, big army comes in, surrounds your town, cuts off food and water, and waits for everybody to starve to death. That's how they did things in the ancient world, pretty brutal. So they're in the advanced stages of that process. The king has been keeping himself sequestered. He still had food to eat, but I'm sure he's, he's been under rations. But now, late in the process, he takes a walk, and he overhears this conversation. 1 Kings six twenty nine. One mother talking to another mother. And now she's come up to plead her case before the king with this other mother. So here's what the one mother says to the king. We, me and this other mother, we boiled my son yesterday and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she hid her son. In other words, that's not fair. After we've already eaten my son, now she's hiding her son. Tell her to get her son out here. Verse 30, his, his response to this. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. He was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. That's the full oath. And here's what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. If I give you a sign, may God curse me. 
There's no way you're getting a sign. If I give you a sign, may God curse me. And so our translators just turned around and said, put it positively. You're not getting a sign. But he said it a lot more intensely than that. If I give you a sign, may God curse me. No way, no how, no sign. Now that's a different view of Jesus than we generally have, don't we? Oh no, we think Jesus runs around. You want a sign? Okay, well I've already healed, you know, I've healed several people standing on my feet. Maybe if I heal somebody standing on my head, that would work for you guys. I'll try it. Of course, I'll try anything because I'm desperate for followers. This text is telling us he's not actually like that. That's not how it's going. That's not reality. That's not the reality of Jesus. There's no way you're getting a sign. May God curse me if I give you a sign. And then what does he do? He leaves. Fourthly. What's with the significance of leaving them? And he left them. Got into a boat again. And went to the other side. And he left them. Show us a sign. There'll be no sign. He left them. He left them. And this is a major shift point in the entire Gospel of Mark. From here on out, the rest of the Gospel of Mark... The ministry of Jesus and the focus on Jesus shifts dramatically from public ministry to crowds to private ministry to his disciples. Oh, there's still a few public things that happen, but it's really striking. The scholars have uh, been writing about it for centuries. It's a big shift here. Now, focus, disciples. He leaves them. He leaves them where they are. Paul was writing about this aspect of God at the end of Romans 11. Romans 11, 19, Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And then he gives that little summary statement we mentioned many times, Romans eleven twenty two. Note then, or behold, the kindness and severity of God, the goodness and severity of God. That's what Mark is showing us in this story. Note then, the kindness and severity of of Jesus. Most people not seeking Jesus never will. 
Now, if you'll come to him, if you really are seeking him, those who seek, find. Great promise open to you. The invitation of, we'll close with this, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. This is also built in there in Mark 8. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Before he leaves you, goes to the other side. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We need to have a really clear sense of where we are, of who God is, and who we are, and what this culture that we're in teaches as reality and what actual reality is. We need a sense of where we are, or we will live foolishly. We will live dangerously we will end up in deadly places if we have no sense of where we are, who we're dealing with when we're dealing with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great word that became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. O Lord, for those here who have committed their way to the Lord Jesus Christ, I rejoice with them, for them. May you enable them to continue to walk in your ways, to praise you for drawing you to to himself. But, Lord, those who are still here would say, well, you know, I still have questions. Well, you know, I don't know. Oh, Lord, may you give them no rest or peace by your grace until they turn and find the peace that can only be found through faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, under the forgiveness of their sins the redirection of their lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.